You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Jen. I'm Natalie. I'm Ginny. And we are the Art History Babes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're back. We're back. We're back. What's up, everyone? What's going on? Oh, man. Not much. Just, you know, same old, same old. (laughs) Right? It's, It's day... 1000 of the pandemic (laughs) i like that estimate (laughs) something like that Yeah, numbers don't matter anymore anyway no time is not real and (laughs) you know we're here and we're doing it yeah it's uh, sunday in april spring is springing sure sure yeah, a little bit. Jen, it has been lately. It's a little gloomy. Vaccinated now, right? You're like on that full vax life. Yeah, Jen's are only full vaxed. Oh, really? Is that for real? Am I the only one? I thought yeah, you were fully real. vaccinated. It's true. Oh my! I'm well, getting my second one this week. You know, not to dwell on COVID talk, but I've been fully vaccinated now for a little while, and uh, I feel the same. I don't feel any amount of. Uh, I don't think my life has changed and I'm actually still pretty paranoid about going anywhere. So really not much has changed and I don't really have any exciting plans other than hoping we all can get fully vaccinated and, you know, actually get together and yeah, rage yeah. or just, you know, kick it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think, Like I said, I'm not vaccinated yet, so I don't really have any input, but I don't know. A lot of people are saying it it feels like, you know, kind of turning over a new leaf, like we're kind of moving in the right direction. It's hopeful. It's positive, I think. And like something to look forward to, you know, people are already talking about like rage in the summer, which like, you know, I, I, yeah, but I want to manifest that. Like I want, I want us to get to a place where we have um, herd immunity and we can be like doing shit again and living again, Mm -hmm. you know, for real. I have this dream about, I want to go to Las Vegas this August. So let's put that energy out there. Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. I still have never been. It's a good time. It's a. I, I want to. It is a Let's weird, fun place, for sure. I have this elusive Psycho Las Vegas festival I've been trying to go to for like the last three years, but something always pops up and I don't get to go. In all reality, I'll f- I feel like I'll end up going and probably just like have too much fun on the first night, and then the whole weekend I'll just be like, oh. Sure, sure. So- I remember. Well, uh- <laughs> 
<laughs> first time I went to Vegas, that's kind of what happened. I got like, um, cause you know, you can drink on the streets or whatever and they sell like the big, like frozen drinks, oh, no. and, like the big tubes. And I got like a giant frozen oh, rum runner. Like, no. <laughs> yeah. And oh, I, took, I was drinking that at like noon walk here on Vegas. It was hung over by 5 PM. I think. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably like, like two days. It, we ended up spending at least one of the nights just in the hotel because I felt terrible. And then as the hangover dissipated a little, uh, we wandered to like a, a Chinese restaurant like attached to the hotel. And that was like my, one of my first nights in Vegas. So like <laughs> it's really Wild easy times. to uh, make not the best decisions but also like i regret nothing it was fun <laughs> it's vegas baby part of it so yeah exactly. you know vegas is cool though vegas is there's just there's so much to discover and there's so many just like weird little hidden gems everywhere and it's this odd like pseudo reality in certain ways like it's it's an interesting place yeah, yeah, one day we'll we'll get into some like postmodernist. Like we'll talk about Robert Venturi one of these days, and we'll do a, a Vegas episode. So maybe if our Patreon people want to send us to Vegas, yes, I was we'll... gonna say, and let's manifest us doing it live from Vegas. <laughs> I cannot guarantee that I will not be blacked out for the entire episode, <laughs> but it'll still be good. So we'll do a video episode live from Vegas, and we're all drinking like frozen like, <laughs> sugar drinks like i just have i'll have like one eye closed and i'll we'll just be like let me let me tell you about let me tell let me tell you about vegas <laughs> and then i will fall asleep during the episode so it's uh, gonna be really good yeah i like that i like that so well, today, thanks for coming on that journey <laughs> today we are talking about uh, just a, a very exciting artist, an artist that like, I don't know, I feel like she's kind of become more well known recently, sure. but still not a household name by any means. And I wouldn't be surprised if you haven't heard of her, but it, just an in incredibly interesting artist and an incredibly important artist in the world of surrealism that like she existed in surrealism, but did her own thing. And that's why I think a lot of her art is better than a lot of the stuff that we know of from the surrealists. It's just, yeah. it's pretty spectacular. And I'm excited to dive deep into it. We are talking about Remedios Varro. Yes. I have been excited about this episode for a really long time. I feel like this was one of the early artists that we kicked around for episodes and then we just never got to her and we're finally doing it. Remedios Varro. I love her name. Remedios, yeah. it means um, Me it means like cure, like cures or, um, mm -hmm. you know, healing, like, like cures, like remedy. and remedies. Mm -hmm. And like that, I feel really is in line with sort of her whole uh, sort of witchy esoteric vibe. And I, I love her. Mm -hmm. I love this woman. <laughs> yeah. Also before we dive into it, I did, since we're kind of, you know, on the topic of like 
COVID and quarantine and all that. At the beginning of quarantine, I did um, a meme set inspired by her. And it was probably one of my favorite memes I've ever done. And also like the most successful, <laughs> like people really enjoyed this one. Um, So I've, I've reposted it on our Instagram a few times, but I did like a self-quarantine activity guide inspired yeah. by Remedius mm-hmm. Varro's paintings because she has so many paintings that are fantastical and surrealist, but they do kind of center on just like one person, right? It's oh, like one person yeah. in a crazy room, like with right all sorts of, um, yeah, interesting esoteric imagery and, and kind of engaging in these very like magical activities. And so for that meme set, I kind of took those and was like, these are things you can do in self-quarantine. And in a way, <laughs> in a way, Remedios Varro has been an inspiration for us all in getting through quarantine. Yeah. Whether you knew it or not. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And a lot of the works that we're going to discuss today, they have a lot in common in the sense that they're often images of interiors. All right. So should we kick off with a little early life? background bio 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 let's get that bio she was born maria de los remedios alicia rodriga varo y uranga love it so she was born on december 16th 1908 which makes her a sag baby fiery makes a lot of sense to me and just a side note so she's almost the exact same age as frida Kahlo. Kahlo was born in 1907 and uh, Vara was born in 1908. So just to situate you, people tend to be a little familiar with, a little more familiar with Kahlo. And she was born in the small town of Angeles, Catalonia, which is in Spain. So her early life really centers around Spain and uh, even into North Africa a little bit. She had a Basque mother and an Andalusian father. I love Anything that connects back to Basque, because that's where my sister's name comes from. And she has a little bit of Basque in her ancestry. So that is the region of Spain that borders with France. So their language and culture and everything is kind of influenced by uh, French Alp culture. Her mother is also super, super devout Catholic. And even her name is connected back to the Virgin de los Remedios, so Virgin of the Remedies. And that was also, you know, inspired by her faith, but also because she had lost a daughter pretty recently, I think, from around the time that Remedios was born. So this was kind of like a little bit of a homage to her deceased daughter and also kind of making an offering of sorts to this saint in order to help protect her new daughter so layers there alternatively her father was a hydraulic engineer who focused more on like universalism and just seemed to have a lot more of an open-minded outlook on life and spirituality and he is also the one who's attributed to recognizing remedios's artistic talent really early in her life so he kind of took her under her wing and pushed her in that direction a little bit, helped support her artistic endeavors. And she started her life pretty traditionally with a Catholic education that would have been standard for young ladies of her upbringing, but she didn't like it very much. She was always uh, pretty wary of Catholicism. 
And there was this little story that I liked about her really valuing her privacy. And she would leave sugar outside of her door of her room at the convent so that if someone were like creeping out, trying to like listen through the door, she could hear their footsteps, uh, which is really smart. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Love that. she was on it. And then in addition to this more traditional schooling, her dad also supplemented her education with books on science and uh, fantasy adventure. So that helped to really just broaden her knowledge. And some of her favorites were Edgar Allan Poe, Jules Verde, and Alexandra Dumas. They moved a lot due to her father's job. So that's when I was saying she was you know, throughout Spain and into North Africa. And that also had a profound impact on her throughout her life in terms of feeling this kind of like loss of home. Um, mm -hmm. So she felt a disconnect from leaving Angeles at a very young age and not getting to return. And that's, you know, we'll get into it, but later in her life, that feeling is going to be kind of amplified by other events. So because her parents were so opposite, she kind of gravitated toward her father more and just connected with him more. Uh, they spent a lot of time together, including when he would work and he would make blueprints for his job as an engineer. So she would help. Uh, I mean, I don't know that she would help him do it, but he would have her copy his drawings and his blueprints. So we obviously see a lot of that influence in her work. We'll get into it. But her line, just the precision that she has. Yeah. All connects back to that. I saw in this documentary that I was watching about her that her dad, I love a daddy's girl. And, you know, another thing that Remedios Varo has in common with Frida Kahlo, big time daddy's girls, big time. Uh, my mom is a pain in the ass, like <laughs> Catholic. I want to not deal with her. But her dad gave her a slide ruler like that you use like in calculus and like that really honed her technical skills that you see appearing in her work like once she produces her mature work yeah and that comes as no surprise because he was also supposedly a very uh tough on her as far as her precision and when she would make any sort of mistake he would have her redo it and start over so that could be, you know, a little frustrating in the, at the time, in the moment. Sure, uh, super perfectionism, fun. Perfectionism is tough to get over, but her art is unbelievable. So I think he has yeah. some credit to take for that. And that like perfection and, and just um, attention to detail really is what sets her apart from a lot of the big name surrealists too. Um, because like one thing I read is that she didn't practice automatism, which... Um, sure. If you if you don't know what that is, it's kind of a very free flowing like you're you're letting uh, the subconscious kind of come through in what you're drawing. It's also mm -hmm. defined in our book, The Honest Art Dictionary. So, you know, check that out. Um, <laughs> she didn't practice that. And that was like a pretty big thing in the surrealist movement. Like they all practiced it. And to her, it was a lot more. Um, it was it was all planned out. It, there was a a logical element so it makes sense that like precision was from the very beginning like very important to her because yeah you can you can totally see that in the work definitely and i just i love the twofold aspect that he introduced this really technical preciseness but also he introduced her to mysticism and philosophy mm -hmm. and all of these really expansive concepts from there 
it's reported that she painted her first like real painting at 12 and it was a portrait of her grandmother that her dad approved of. So that was probably a pretty big deal. And then in 1924, she was allowed to join the Real Academia Bellas Artes de San Fernando in Madrid, Spain. And she started there at age 15, a little young, youngin. And I think Jen might have more on her short time there and on. Yeah. So by the time the family settles in Madrid, Remedios, she's 15. She gets accepted into this pretty prestigious school um, of art. And she's got El Prado like right down the street, which is incredible. I can't even imagine. So she spends a ton of time at El Prado uh, with her dad and also just on her own. And there, uh, Remedios really pays attention and becomes a student of the great masters of not just Spanish masters, but also um, Northern Renaissance masters. And so her big influences at this time are El Greco, Goya, and Bosch, which I found out that they call him El Bosco in Spanish. And I had no idea. I was like, who is El Bosco? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and I was like, what the hell are they talking about? And then I, <laughs> I figured it out. I was like, oh, so that was kind of fun to learn that. Um, so she's and you can see these influences directly in her works. Totally. Um, Definitely. Goya's caprichos, which are a lot of kind of dark works that they show maybe like men with like big mechanical wings and these um, kind of monstrous figures um, you see directly in a lot of her famous works later in life. So she is absorbing everything that she can. And around this time, uh, she's pretty young. She meets Geraldo Lizoraga, who was another, I believe he was a student at San Fernando. And he becomes um, extremely important in developing her early interest in surrealism. He painted portraits and landscapes and explored many different styles of surrealism. So around this time, you know, Remedios really wants to get away from her domineering Catholic mother, and she wants to just explore the world. And Gerardo kind of promises her freedom and so they get married and they get married and they move to Paris and initially they are really shunned by the Paris uh, surrealist group which I guess was like real snooty hoity-toity you know you're not woke enough to be in our club <laughs> like you're not doing automatism uh what the hell are you even doing you're you're planning stuff out with the ruler like get like, out of here <laughs> i love that. Uh, take your ruler and get <laughs> yeah you know like what are you talking about ruler like we're in here drawn of our eyes closed and, <laughs> right? and um yeah. so you know they they're not instantly accepted and gerardo gets a job in barcelona and so they move to barcelona and in barcelona is where remedios really starts to come into her own and is just hugely influenced by not just the art scene in Barcelona, but also just the the beauty of the city. And um, I mean, Spain is just crazy beautiful and Barcelona is gorgeous. And so this is where 
she starts hanging out with some other artists. And um, around this time, she's, she pretty much takes on like two lovers like at the same time or three. I don't even know. Get it. There's a guy named Oscar Dominguez um, who is a, um, an important surrealist in the Spanish art scene. Um, a French man named Benjamin Perret, who becomes a very important companion for her. He's a surrealist poet. And she also meets Victor Bronner, who ends up being extremely influential in her interests um, in magic, alchemy, and the supernatural. And um, it's with this artist that she starts to explore the concept of um, creating art that is imbued with some kind of supernatural quality and the word that gets tossed around a lot around this time is talisman like some kind of um, magical object that she seeks to to make with her art and also around this time remedios is reading the work of Upspensky, who wrote about the fourth dimension so everyone's into the fourth dimension realists in the fourth dimension they were that was a thing you just can't Mm -hmm. stop talking about the fourth dimension you know (laughs) also (laughs) in our book i think too we get into the fourth dimension a little bit i mean it's gonna drop our book whenever not i know just buy it um (laughs) (laughs) just buy buy our book book. come on come on so uspensky um his writings are really pushing the idea that the fourth dimension can only be achieved in painting and that capturing the fourth dimension, this space time uh, whole conundrum can only be represented visually in painting. Interesting. So cool, cool, cool. She loves it. And around the time that she's into all these concepts she's coming into her own remedios and pere they go back to paris they're kind of trying to uh get back into the surrealist group pere is sort of like i'm a big guy in the surrealist group so they kind of get in there and and she finally becomes a part of this group but also is on the outskirts and really doesn't participate that much just kind of observes and keeps her distance which isn't like the worst way to deal with these parisian elites you know and so during this time though they're pretty broke uh parade is bad with money and remedios is just getting by so interestingly they both get really into forgeries which remedios uh Mm -hmm. confesses to later on in life and her big specialty was forging the works of de chirico who was an Italian artist um, and who made surrealist works, which is kind of ballsy to be <laughs> forging the works of someone who maybe they she knows. And yeah, is, I mean, just, that's really like close quarters. Like. <laughs> right. So, I mean, a, a girl's got to do, I suppose. Truly. So things are rough. World War II breaks out and it is not a good time for the intellectuals in france or pretty much anywhere or, or anyone anywhere yeah period <laughs> um so the the couple 
and many other artists, they flee the Nazis. They end up in Casablanca. And in Casablanca, where they meet up with many of their contemporaries in the surrealist scene, these people all are granted asylum from Mexico. And so that is how many of these artists from all throughout Europe end up in Mexico during the Second World War. And I think we should take a break. I was and just going to say the same yeah. thing. We're on the same wavelength. We'll get into it. Thank break, goodness. break. We've returned. Hope you enjoyed that message from our sponsors. Mm-hmm. Probably, probably better help. It's probably therapy. <laughs> There's a good it's, chance. It, yeah. Therapy. You'll get a discount for your first month with, <laughs> with our history beeps. Do it. It's good for you. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we have returned. And now let's talk about uh, remedios in Mexico. Um, let's so- do it. Often, Remedios Varro is described as a Mexican artist, and some people are surprised when they find out that she's not Mexican, she's from Spain. And a lot of this is because in Mexico is where she is just, she becomes a mature artist and people love her, but not right away. So... She arrives in Mexico at the end of 1941 after uh, fleeing the Nazis, and she's accepted by the Mexican government. She is given the status of a political exile for one year, and that can be renewed. And she was allowed to find work with the exception of bars, cabarets, and restaurants, providing she did not displace any Mexican workers. So that should hint to you that there is some tension. Um, (laughs) A lot of the the Mexicans are not super stoked on the fact that 15,000 refugees were accepted into the country around this time. And the majority of them could be termed the intelligentsia. And they brought with them really like a stimulus to the economic and cultural development of the country. And they were, many of them though, did hope to return to Spain or France around this time, rather than trying to really assimilate with Mexicans and their culture. But like I mentioned before, these uh, exiled artists were not loved by everyone. And interestingly, one of the some of the biggest haters were Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. <laughs> they were hating. And it was like, wow. They really, really rejected what they deemed as this foreign colonizing influence of the European artists, which is like, come on, you know, because Frida's dad is German, correct? (laughs) Frida's dad is from Germany. Um, Diego Rivera went, he spent the first like 15 years of his career as an artist in Russia and in Paris. And he can go there, but they can't come. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. The identity thing. And, you know, as we know, Diego and Frida, like a huge part of their identity was like so much so that we know like Frida Kahlo changed her birth date to match the Mexican Revolution. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. the more invested your identity is in a place, the more protective you're going to be of it. You know, it's so true. I was watching the Q&A. I finished that Q&A documentary today. Oh, Lord. 
Ooh, Ooh, don't get me started on QAnon. Do not no. do it. <laughs> I, I, I can't. Corey and I, I might won't. do a hot take, but it would be too too much also i don't know <laughs> yeah if you, just... you want to know how i feel head over to I'm, I'm plugging my other podcast happy harvest horror show listen to the satanic panic episode yes. i go the fuck off about q you do yeah <laughs> jenny can confirm <laughs> i listen to it <laughs> so if that's what you're looking for check that out but anyways mm. back to well, remedios so yeah so you know it gets kind of nasty uh, you know, Frida, Frida Kahlo, who was in Paris in 1939 for her own exhibition as a guest of Andre Breton, who was a problematic guy, but, you know, he was kind of like the the leader of the surrealist group, you know, self-appointed leader. Um, but so she felt some sort of like, I don't know, ownership of this scene and so she writes a letter, Frida Kahlo does, to Nicholas Murray, who was a Hungarian-born American photographer and her longtime lover. And she writes about these uh, intellectuals from Paris. She says, they make me vomit. They are so damn intellectual and rotten that I can't stand them anymore. I'd rather sit on the floor in the market at Toluca and sell tortillas than to have anything to do with those artistic bitches of Paris. I, like I, damn i, I kind of get that like <laughs> like you know like sometimes you just have those moments where you just intellectuals are being obnoxiously intellectual and it's just like sure. nah thanks <laughs> like, right i mean i get it bitches <laughs> artistic bitches of paris it's like yikes yeah um so you know um which is it's kind of a, it's kind of disappointing but you know frida Kahlo never really claimed we call we kind of lump her into this group of like being a feminist today but frida Kahlo was just a really complicated figure and our you know, modern day expectations of what she means for us as a feminist figure really have nothing to do with who she was in her life. Truly. Right. Yeah. Um, Definitely. So- I think it would actually be cool to do because it's been several years now since we did our Frida episode. I think it'd be fun to do like a follow up Frida episode where we maybe dive a little bit deeper than we did in that one. And that's a great oh, yeah. episode. Don't get me wrong. But there's just so much more that we yeah, could kind her. of uncover involving Frida. And she's such a yeah. figure now that, yeah, I think that would be a really interesting thing to, to kind of unravel a little bit. Mm-hmm. I would love to do that. And we will, um, because yeah, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, Remedios is, uh, you know, vastly rejected by this Mexican scene who are really steeped in nationalism. And, but she's okay. She makes really close friends with Leonora Carrington, who is another incredible artist that I would love to talk about one day. Yes. Um, she was also a refugee in Mexico um, from the Second World War. She was an English surrealist painter. And they become friends. They hang out like every day. And they're both really into spiritualism and magic. And so they they literally make like spells for each other and stuff. It's like I it's very that. Uh, they write Pierce each other little ingredients to like their little potions. Like I'm not kidding. It's cute as fuck. It's really cute. That's really, the cutest thing ever. I love it so they much. They would do like little pranks together. I mean, like, yeah. 
they they did you know they did paintings together they spent a lot of their time together writing they would write fairy tales they collaborated on a play um and yeah they did like potions and recipes and they just became very close friends another um photographer who was in mexico as well from um europe named katie horna became a close friend and so they were known as the three witches which i just think that's so nice love it i love it so much yeah um and Man, so if frida wasn't such a hater they could have been like our predecessors they could have been the four witches like they didn't have, i mean you know whatever um, <laughs> her, loss. her loss so in mexico um remedios took on a variety of jobs and um she did like some work for like a fashion house she did some designing for clothing which you can really see there's a lot of attention to uh, like like seam seamstress seamstress seamstressy <laughs> what's the word that I'm looking for um, she was very influenced by her grandmother's seamstress skills and this comes through in a lot of her works and it comes through in the work that she did to get by in Mexico and so she would design and make clothing that would often be clothing for many of her exiled surrealist friends costume parties which I would do anything to go to one of these parties and there's a work by night from 1957 called women's tailor um, which is really fun um, and it just shows this lady sitting on a couch with these sort of ghost apparitions next to her and she is being presented with these three incredible dresses being modeled by different women and you can imagine that remedios was thinking about her friends and um making this lovely lovely painting so it's one of the things that she does in mexico another her more her main source of income in the late 40s was that she got a job with casa bayer bayer being the aspirin people um Dang. yeah <laughs> wow look and, at that and so she had the task of illustrating their promotional literature. And so she makes these crazy paintings that, I mean, I'm, I would buy pills if they were being marketed to me like I this. have a bottle of Bayer aspir- aspirin in my medicine cabinet right now. And I really wish it was like <laughs> the packaging was like Remedio Svaro. Like that would I be know. so Bring much it better. <laughs> Instead, it's just like a bright yellow bottle with a very... Uh, basic you know lame i know uh, 21st century <laughs> capitalist advertisement but it's pretty boring but <laughs> these works are great she does insomnia from 1947 which is just this like really kind of unsettling interior scene with these eyes that are kind of coming at you and these strange sort of uh prismatic butterflies flying in from the side mm-hmm. um then in the pamphlet which this work was included in, there were um, there was some text warning of the trauma of insomnia, sensing that someone has been observing them. They open tired lids, searching the nocturnal shadows. Undefined anxiety fills the solitude of the dark, dry rooms, devoid of warmth. That's just a wild 
<laughs> advertisement. Bring for- this shit back, dude. So this was for uh, sleeping pills. Yeah. Oh my like, god. Bring this back, for please. Bayer, for Bayer <laughs> sleeping pills. Amazing. Um, another really interesting work around this time was um, rheumatism lumbago sciatica, which <laughs> are all just about how it sucks to have back pain. And so this was um, for pain pills. One more quote here in the leaflet of this um, that accompanied this work. Uh, quote, as if sharp nails are being driven into flesh, into the joints, into the bones, into the nerves. These are the sensations that one can suffer. Rheumatism, lumbago, sciatica. <laughs> um, so, I am whoa. obsessed with this. <laughs> like I knew nothing of these pill advertisements. And this Me is either. this is what I want the future it's to look like so this fun I, this feels super futuristic i can't believe that this was like closer to the 50s amazing <laughs> like, i love it yeah oh, and wow. so the painting that accompanies this also from 1947 shows this figure in the foreground just being like just assaulted by these like pins and needles and nails and um like this very foreboding landscape with uh, thorns coming up all around there's this castle in the background surrounded by these black clouds and it's it's a wild painting and there's been a lot of uh, speculation that Remedios Varro was possibly influenced by Frida Kahlo's work um, The Broken Column which features Frida Kahlo in the foreground um, with very similar looking straps that make up her corset. Um, there's straps all over this figure's body in the rheumatism painting. And she's also covered um, all throughout her body in, in these like nails and pins um, in front of a very desolate, dark landscape. So the love might not have been there from Frida to Remedios, but Remedios uh, seems to have drawn inspiration from Kahlo's work. Mm-hmm. So, you know... No need to hate. <laughs> we can all be friends. So. Let's be friends. <laughs> so, um, so these are all—they're kind of commercial illustrations. They do look incredible, but they are not even really comparable to the work that made her super famous. This work was done for commercial reasons, and she actually signs her name as Uranga on these paintings, her mother's maiden name, to separate her commercial work from her own art. So that's, you know, interesting. Mm -hmm. And so... Around this time, her second husband, who, by the way, she never divorced her first husband. She just married this guy when uh, they moved to Mexico. And he... (laughs) Back him up. Benjamin Perret, he was homesick. He wanted to return to France, but Varro was not interested. And so he leaves and she stays behind and kind of has like a i don't know just sort of her return to single gal life i suppose and um and takes on a lover 14 years her junior by the name of jean nicole and jean nicole was a pilot and an adventurer and he whisks her away to um where do they go is it venezuela yeah they they go to venezuela at the end of 1947 this is like a romance novel it's wild um 
they they go you know she she's in the jungle and she starts working like as an epidemiologist or she starts not epidemiologist she starts she starts doing scientific drawings of insects that she finds in the 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 jungle of venezuela so she's she's having a, a a rad time it's it's wild i mean yeah that sounds like fodder for my vision board like that. <laughs> yeah and you know so she's having this wild time with this young guy and he's all sexy and he flies planes and you know <laughs> you could just imagine them swinging from vines in venezuela um but of course yeah uh, this doesn't last uh because you know rarely do those wild flings last um and she comes back to Mexico and meets another political refugee named Walter Gruen. And it is with Gruen's support, um, mainly uh, economic support, but also emotional. Um, He is just, he believes in her work 100% and he provides her with the support to fully dedicate herself to painting. Nice. Um, So, yeah. The dream. The (laughs) dream. Right. And so this is by this time we're in we're getting into the 1950s and Remedios Varro begins to really hone her craft and come into her own with a mature style. She begins to actually really study the Renaissance masters. She brings in the technique of sfumato. Mm. popularized by the works of da Vinci and other Renaissance painters. And she begins to meticulously prepare her paintings, which do take her a long time. Um, Some reports say that she took up to three months to complete one work, which I still think is fast. But And she has her first major exhibition in Mexico in 1955 at Galeria Diana. And these are 12 works that she showcases. And wouldn't you know it, Diego Rivera shows up and goes apeshit because he's just like, oh, my God, this is the best. And suddenly Diego Rivera discovers Remedios, Faro, whatever. (laughs) But she becomes a celebrity like overnight. And all of her works in this gallery sold within three days. And from there on, she just becomes huge. So that's 1955. And in the years that follow, she would have a series of exhibitions in Mexico that were critically acclaimed. And very quickly, she becomes extremely popular. Amazing. The article that I'm going to talk about after we take a quick break um, brings up. So the article I'm going to talk about was actually written in 1981. But at the very beginning, she talks about Varro's exhibition at the Museo de Arte Moderno, um, which was a a retrospective and Mm -hmm. how at that time, anyways, it drew the largest audiences in Mexican history, even beating out Rivera. Oh, yeah. By like a lot. Yeah you know yeah so at least in you know even though she isn't a household name you know in the u.s or in europe like she was kind of the queen in in mexico like very very well known very much celebrated and what a life lived yeah right (laughs) but yeah let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and, and dive into 
some some paintings. Yes. have returned and yeah we're gonna we're gonna dive back into some really fun images by uh remedios varo as i mentioned i got most of my information from a an article called remedios varo voyages and visions by janet kaplan 1981 also fun thing i learned today for all of you lapsed academics out there currently you can get a JSTOR subscription for free and read up to 100 articles every month for free. That is so dope. Mm-hmm. I love JSTOR. So cool. Okay, I need that information from you. Or do you literally <laughs> just go do it like anyone can? Or? Yeah, anyone can. Anyone can. Awesome. You can do JSTOR. an independent researcher subscription and get 100 articles. And I've never read 100 articles in a month in no. my life. So, like- <laughs> No, that's crazy. And you ought not to because that's a problem. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, get it. And I, and I, I think it's like a COVID related thing. So I don't know how long that's going to go on for, but take advantage of it while you can. Cool. 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 I know I will. Very good to know. Yeah. Cause I just access JSTOR through my, um, public library card. Mm, Nice. Which is also free. So yeah, that's another, another way. I feel like my library doesn't pay for that, but maybe. Look into it. Libraries often do. As we kind of talked about, Remedios Varo is is a form of a surrealist, but she didn't really fit in with the surrealists in a lot of ways. And her work was just very intentional, like creating very intentional, almost dreamscape-esque type situations but it was really more I guess it was more of like a journey like a lot of her stuff is about journeying um like hero's journey type vibes and like the the energy I get from Romedios Varro's work is like a mature Fantasia type vibe like if it wasn't Mickey Mouse and it was an adult woman instead (laughs) for sure and I've also heard um Tim Burton linked back to her as like him drawing influence. That. So I could definitely, definitely see that there too. Yeah. Um, so fantastical. It's just her work is incredibly fantastical. So as we've talked about, like she believed in magic, was very much uh, mystic. And one fun little story that I found in this article was about how one day, one evening on a Mexican street, she found that a plant that produced fruits that looked like eggs and she just thought it was really interesting and was fascinated by it so she brought it to her apartment set it in the center of her plant-filled terrace in the moonlight and placed her tubes of paint around it she felt that this special plant her paints and the moon were harmonious together and that their conjunction would prove auspicious for the next day of painting i mean yeah Perfect. I love that. I love so it too much. What more is there to say? <laughs> I know. Like I do shit like that all the time. I just put random shit like in the moonlight and like it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, tomorrow night's a full yeah. moon. So oh, yeah. ready your items. 
tomorrow night's full moon in Scorpio. So if oh, you're feeling God. some type of way, that's, that's why that's I've been. Moon. That's where my moon is. Like I've cried a <laughs> hundred times this weekend. I'm, yep. So oh, I, I cried like all day yesterday, like all day Me long. Me too, Corey. <laughs> all day i was listening to elton john in the backyard it was just like <laughs> it's an emotional oh. one it's an emotional yeah. one for all of us for sure Yikes. welcome to okay. my base level um so so you know kind of like what we were talking about before with remedios varo and like just her cute spells and magical things she'd do with her friends like this feels very relatable like it feels mm-hmm. like just a very cute little magical thing you can do to you know, inspire yourself, inspire your work and and take advantage of the the beautiful energy of the moon. And I love it. Lots of mysticism, lots of occult stuff. But yeah, the voyage and like journey was a huge thing as well um, in terms of the themes of her artwork. And it was very much like a, a spiritual journey is kind of at the heart of a lot of the things that she was creating. There's um, this is an exact quote from that paper. The journey for Varro had a profound significance spiritually as well as psychologically. Exiled from her homeland, she embarked on a spiritual pilgrimage, committing herself to a search for self-knowledge, restlessly looking in any direction that might offer new ways of knowing. Encouraged by her experience among the Surrealists, she looked to dreams, alchemy, astrology, mysticism, magic, the occult, and science, opening herself to any avenue by which she might explore the unknown in herself and in the universe. The exploration became a dominant theme in her work. I totally get that. I yep. think that, and yes. especially there's all, all the little motifs too. There's I, there's boats and there's little uh, tricycles and little wheels and <laughs> stuff, you know? Yep. Lots yep. of um, strange vehicles, like, yeah. you know, not real vehicles, but vehicles nonetheless. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> um, so one one painting I really want to talk about specifically because I'm I'm obsessed with the way that this author talks about it, but I also kind of want to see what you guys think is exploration of the sources of the Orinoco River, 1959. And um, speaking of vehicles, like it's this uh, the the main character in this image is in this interesting little red uh egg shaped boat for one kind of thing like <laughs> very bosh i love one. it <laughs> a boat for one. and there's it like, almost looks like a santa suit boat like that's the closest thing i see yeah and, yeah and there's these like uh, there's like these fish fins in the back yeah. And then, but up top, there's just these two little rando, like, bird wings. Yes. It's got, like, lapels. I know. I love it. And I love how, too, in the water that she's floating in, there there are just tree trunks, like, sticking up Mm. in the water, which, you know, just makes for a very interesting, like, river. That's not something Mm -hmm. you see super often. So I'm going to read how it's described in the article because I just think it's fantastic. It's kind of long, so bear with me. The exploration of the sources of the Orinoco River, the Voyager is a determined woman on a solitary journey to find the source. Although she is dressed humorously in an English raincoat and bowler hat and carries wings overhead that seem to have been borrowed from a theatrical production, 
The seriousness of her purpose is not compromised. Even the playfulness of her vehicle, a vest coat transformed into a fragile little ship with notes in the side pocket and compass instead of watch fob, does not negate the intensity of her expression or the somber watchfulness of the dark birds that attend her from the hollows of nearby trees. She is a woman, independent and resolute, set out on a mission to find the source. And what she finds significantly is that the source is a simple wine glass set on a modest table in a hollow tree. From the glass, liquid miraculously rises and flows out, creating the very river on which she travels. Again, this image is double-edged, both fanciful and autobiographical. The Vestcoat boat and flooded woods are wonderfully evocative, dreamlike images of subconscious travel. They also refer to real travels that Varro undertook in life, including a trip to Venezuela, where the Orinoco River flows, to join an unsuccessful expedition for gold. However, the search of Varro's protagonist here must be understood primarily on a psychological and spiritual level. Here, the gold is philosopher's gold, the alchemical liquid of transformation. As alchemy is both a scientific study and a mystical search, a chemical attempt at transformation of materials, and a personal search for transformation of the psyche, so Varro here uses exploration of the river source as a metaphor for the search for the self, enlightenment, the truth. Venturing deep into a flooded forest, she has found a hollow log shrine in which a sacred vessel overflows with magical liquid. She is an explorer looking into nature as into herself for the possibilities that the world might offer i just love it and i can imagine because by this this was painted in 1959 so she this is 10 years after she gets back from her two-year fling with sexy jean nicole in (laughs) venezuela and so she's you know she's getting older and she's just thinking about that the time that she was in this jungle with her sexy young lover and looking for the source, the, the gold, you know, the adventure. I think that it's so much fun. Yeah. And just Maybe the, I mean, that concept, just metaphorically speaking, symbolically speaking, like searching for the source, right? It's like yes. that grand, that grand search for like <laughs> the, the source of it all, the source of, of everything. And like, um, and then, and then I also just adore the fact that it is at both times kind of serious and resolute, but also very playful and very absurdist, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. the perfect combination, which I feel like all spiritual psychological journeys should be a mix of those two Mm -hmm. things, you know? Um, it's a great image and yeah. And just beautifully written about here by Janet. Thanks, Janet. (laughs) Thanks, Janet. Um, Janet. And then I have another one I wanted to talk about quick. Mimesis from uh, 1960. So like all good surrealists of the time, there is Jungian and Freudian influence seen in her work Mm -hmm. because they were, they were, you know, the the big guys. Psychoanalysis is huge in surrealism. It was just huge in modern art, honestly. You kind of had to engage with um, 
those theories of of Jung and Freud. And she she de- definitely did that in some of her images. I really like this one. I think it actually connects back to everything we were kind of talking about with Remedios Varro and quarantine and being alone. So this is a quote from Remedios Varro about this painting, Mimesis. An unsettling case of mimesis, this woman is lost in her thoughts and has remained motionless for so long that she is turning into the armchair. Her flesh has become just like the cloth on the chair, and her hands and feet are already turned wood. The furniture gets bored, and the armchair bites the table. The chair in the background investigates what the drawer contains, and the cat, which went out to hunt, is frightened and astonished upon returning as he sees the transformation. And so in this image, we have this woman. And it is also important to note, we haven't really talked about this. A lot of the characters in Remedios Varro's paintings are uh, rather androgynous. Mm-hmm. Um, so like yeah. some of them, you know, they, they it, it's not really fair to gender mo- most of them, I think. Um, and so this is definitely an androgynous character, but um, a lot of people have read it as a woman and sitting in an armchair and and actually kind of being consumed by the armchair and like becoming this hybrid uh armchair human being armchair person like if you even look at her hands how her hands have kind of been turned into the little like armrests Mm -hmm. and her face is the same design as the patterning on the chair and yeah and so she's kind of like melting into it and the author of the article our pal janet um, (laughs) reads this more as like an allegory for domestic drudgery so like feminism etc etc but and i'm not saying that that's wrong but i actually think it reads a lot of like analysis paralysis Mm -hmm. um and like i i don't know i identified a lot with this image in that like getting so lost in your thoughts and being um, stuck in one spot and you you just kind of like, yeah, you kind of like melt, like you kind of like melt inward and like you feel stuck and you feel kind of unable to move. And I also feel like, I don't know how I missed this one in creating the meme set because this is like, to me anyways, this is like the quarantine vibe personified, you know, like, like totally. those days in quarantine where you're just stuck with your own thoughts and you literally become an armchair. (laughs) Yeah. And if you take an edible, God forbid, you're just going (laughs) to literally be this chair person. That reminds me. Do you remember in the nineties? There was those PSAs that were like, don't do drugs. Like don't do marijuana. And there was um, one deflated girl. Yeah. She just like melts into the couch. Good Lord. (laughs) Sarah? Sarah? She won't answer you. Or she can't. Why not? This is the way it's been since she started smoking pot. I know. Dude, that I, stuck I, with me, too. I know. Me, too. I think about that one a lot, especially because, I don't know, they tried to uh, market that to us as, like, you don't want to be this person. I'm like, honestly, that looks kind of dope. Um, <laughs> what did <laughs> she smoke? To, and where do I yeah. get it? Jen goes to the dispensary and she's like, hey, you guys remember that 
dare commercial they <laughs> like, do you know, anything that'll make me feel like that <laughs> they absolutely they'll be like i got you yeah no there there's definitely a time and place to melt into a couch for sure <laughs> but i this doesn't um, look but it doesn't look like she's having a good time no this, this is, like i said that's why i kind of connected to analysis paralysis which yeah. is an incredibly uncomfortable feeling um oh, like I know it all too well i know same and even in just reading what she had to say about the painting like you know the woman is so lost in her thoughts and remains motionless like that's kind of how i read it i don't i don't jump on the like domestic drudgery angle personally, no. but yeah. it's uh, a reach that's a reach yeah also as we've talked about like so much of our work very witchy very magical alchemical but kind of connected to how she even thought about her artwork as we said at the beginning you know she was very into precision she was very focused on details and she had a, res- a deep respect and appreciation for science but in the same way she was um, critical of the rigidity of science which I, I completely understand like here it says like understanding scientific inquiry as analogous to spiritual pursuits she felt that science must not dominate but must rather harmonize with the forces of nature mm-hmm. and this i think connects to what we've talked about on like I, we talked about it in our witches episode and this idea of like the witch as scientist right mm-hmm. like the witch as someone who engages in processes and and is connected to the earth but is actually researching and um you know maybe engaging in alchemy these kinds of things and you can really see in her 1958 creation of the birds this image very much exemplifies this this uh combination of nature magic science art they're all kind of feeding each other in this image of this bird person who is I love this image so much. <laughs> this this large bird person is at a desk and is like is is drawing, painting, but is also holding like a prism up to the window mm-hmm. and some kind of light source like energy source is coming through the prism and is animating the birds and then they come to life off of the image. It's oh man, I'm just, obsessed. Yeah, it's so good. It's such a perfect like encapsulation of all of that right nature science are all kind of working together and i think that's at the core of just like so many of these like fantastical images in the unsubmissive plant from 1961 i think this one deals a lot more with the aspects of science that she felt critical of the character in this image is kind of like got like a fried look like very like just uh, exhausted by their scientific work. Yeah. Um, Burnt out. Literally. I'm definitely getting that vibe. And I like how the wild, like frizzy hair mimics the plant that yes. they are working on. Yep. And, um, and so this is more of, yeah, I, I think the, the space where science maybe burns out kind of like is missing the point. And, and that's what it feels like she's representing here. Um, there's this quote, I honestly can't remember if it was Remedios or Janet, but I'll read it anyways. (laughs) Science grows greedy for control and in the process of controlling is alienated from the very nature that was its starting point. Boom. And I think that's what we see in the uh, unsubmissive plant for sure. Just like this, Mm -hmm. like this tenseness, this tenseness around the scientific inquiry. Whereas with creation of birds, it's this very harmonious, like 
magical, natural process. And also our bird person looks just chill as fuck, like just having just a calm, good time animating their bird painting. Yeah, it's Um, what I want to do for my job. Right? (laughs) I want to be that bird person. Yeah, (laughs) truly. Um, Yeah, I know, Ginny, you had a bit more to say on like alchemy and science and all that. Right, right. Yeah. So in the creation of the birds is a good example of that as well. And I had read an article called The Art of Remedios Varro Issues of Gender Ambiguity and Religious Meaning by Deborah um Haynes. Yep. we got deb and janet deb. <laughs> yeah, deb and Jan. uh, this one's from uh, 1995 <laughs> nice so so a little more current than mine <laughs> slightly more contemporary just a smidge um <laughs> but in this article like the author talks a lot about these different elements of kind of esotericism that Remedios was really interested in and pursuing and talking about like her sounds like she had the coolest library unsurprisingly of anyone where she had books on Russian mysticism she had books by Madame Blavatsky who was like a famous theosophist theosophy is such a good word it is it's hard to say but it's good (laughs) um Naturally, full collections of Freud and Jung, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, mysticism texts, alchemy, Greek philosophy. And, you know, it's clear that she had like a very curious and kind of intellectually leaning brain. And, you know, I think when we talk about like esotericism, esoterica, it's it's kind of um, a vague and somewhat elusive, large topic. And a lot of that is intentional. Like a lot of esotericism are looking at traditions and beliefs and practices that are intentionally somewhat secretive to a Mm -hmm. certain degree. Mm -hmm. Um, So by no means am I going to like unpack all of that, more just talk about a couple elements of that and how it manifests in her work. So alchemy is a big one. And alchemy, did we do an an episode on alchemy? Sure did, Faith. I thought so. Long time ago, but yes, we did. Yeah, it's like, that was, I think, when we were still in school. Mm -hmm. Another life. But just real simple, alchemy was kind of, is viewed as a way of transmuting materials. So it's like taking things that are already in one matter, one material and trying to transform it into something better. So like the, the real driving goal in alchemy was turning material into gold. Yes. Um, Also just to connect for all of, all of our witchy listeners out there, or if you're into astrology, Scorpio full moon, Scorpio is considered the alchemist of of the zodiac. So uh, if you're into doing moon rituals, alchemy is a good theme to kind of be working with cool. this full moon. Yeah, good tip. Al- alchemy is very interesting, and it's it's really grounded in you know it has a, like the elements. So you have like fire, earth, and all that, and um, 
it's very interesting. Highly recommend looking into it and getting very confused, but also very intrigued by it. <laughs> yeah. So there's a painting by Varro called Alchemy or the Useless Science of 1958 that represents, as with a lot of Varro's paintings, like a lone solitary figure. And I think that in and of itself relates to a lot of alchemy and kind of the tradition of like being like a hermit, like being this like lone figure who's like searching for something, whether it's like a physical journey or like a experimental journey where you're, you're like trying to like find some kind of source, whether that's internal, external, both. Um, So it's this lone figure who's like turning a little, a little crank. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Um, And they're in this like checkerboard or like chessboard patterned cloak that blends into the ground. So it's the same pattern of their Mm -hmm. cloak and the ground where it looks like the two are actually one. So it's either like the cloak bled into the floor and became the floor or the floor became the cloak and the figure to say. A big um, reoccurring um, visual motif in a lot of right, work. where it's like yeah. what informs what, where's the beginning, where's the end. The pattern on those like materials, she is flexing hard. Like I oh, cannot yeah. stop staring at yeah. just like how she did that. <laughs> yeah, no, that that looks like my nightmare. Honestly, like yeah, like, this is this is a type of art that I. No, I would rather do anything else, but like, I love looking at it. I know. And in the distance, there are these vessels that are dripping some kind of green liquid into little containers. And this is also a, you know, a theme of alchemy, but also something that you see multiple motifs of this kind of vessel imagery in Varro's work. Um, which is very informed by alchemy and and the idea of like things are interconnected. So even just talking about, okay, is the floor what started or is it her cloak? And it's just this all like interconnectedness of things so that, you know, you are creating something. Well, it's not even like you're creating something. It's changing things that were already. So it's like this, God, describing this is really alchemy no you're doing great (laughs) i mean it's it's transformation it's just like complete transformation transformation (laughs) and transformation from like one continual point of origin that it's just all in this kind of collective sort of like universe almost and Mm -hmm. and something that's really common in alchemy too is like there's a lot of emphasis on um combining male and female attributes so whether those are like materials like this material is is labeled as having like a more male energy um where another material might be more female but it's like the combining of those elements to a point where there's a lot of discussion on like hermaphrodites or androgyny within alchemy and i think that definitely shows in a lot of um, Varro's paintings where you have these figures that are intentionally androgynous where you know they're mm-hmm. they're some kind of combination of 
male and female energy. Yeah, it's the the um, masculine meets the feminine the feminine which is like a big conversation in like new age spirituality like Right, right. Um and then another thing that I thought was quite interesting as, as far as, you know, sources that she was interested in and reading about is um, discussion about Pythagorean science. So we like know Pythag by the Pythagorean theorem and, you know, triangles, right? Ah, oh, triangles. <laughs> um, but it's a little deeper in terms of like talking about sacred geometry and like numerology. Yes. Yeah. It's so, <laughs> oh, man. It's so cool. So one of the major like Pythagorean theories is that really the number that best sums up kind of a visualization of the cosmos and how the cosmos is all interconnected is the number three. And Pythagoras visualized this in like strings that connected heaven, earth, and matter. So boom, 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 triangle. Triangle. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And they didn't teach me this in math class, man. I feel. I know. I wish they would have. I would have liked it more. Yeah, sacred sacred geometry is the the fringes, the outsider uh, approach to math for sure. That does it. Kept Pythagorean's theorem. They just didn't talk about his other ideas. (laughs) Exactly. Selective. Truly, truly. And so. Pythagoras called this the monochord, which kind of talks about, you know, elements of heaven, earth, and matter all being in harmony with one another Mm -hmm. and how like that harmony is really visualized in a way that's akin to music where like if you are thinking about, you know, this universal kind of collective experience that you can hear sounds from you know different planes if if that makes sense like it's all this Mm -hmm. kind of collective shared frequency that everything is on and and you know I think oftentimes and a lot of other ancient Greek philosophers like apparently Aristotle thought this was fucking dumb and I think he's fucking dumb. Me too. Um, Get him. <laughs> Take Coming that, for you, Aristotle. Aristotle. <laughs> um, but, you know, for that, like, when I'm talking about, like, that kind of, like, um, triangle where it's heaven, earth, and matter, I think a lot of times matter is taken out of that, and it's more just, like, you know, our direct correlation like earth and heaven and that's it mm-hmm. whereas matter is like a whole nother thing where it's like and especially again connecting with alchemy where it's working with earth elements matter um in a way that it's a lot more um kind of like an exchange like it's it's part of our universe it's all connected it's all like sort of circled in together and so this like triangle this prism imagery is in a lot of Varro's work, like in the the creation of the birds, that little prism that that figure is holding. And there are other paintings of hers. There's one called Solar that has a lot of that um, prism imagery. Harmony is another one. And this other painting, it's called The Flutist. And it's a figure that's playing music. And in the act of playing music is actually like 
pulling rocks and structuring like a tower. So I love it's that. Like, That's like it's airbending. Yeah. Yeah. That. Like the more I get into this, like, like I, I think I get it. And I'm like, yeah, like the number three, you know, <laughs> monochord matter. And then like, I lose it, but like, it's still so interesting. And yeah. I just feel that that's a lot of what she was working through in her work. And it, and it's like, you know, I think because of the secrecy of like alchemy that that has more questions to me in a lot of ways than answers. I think she's the same. She has the sort of same approach in her work where like she's putting vessels and tubes and prisms, but she's not trying to like give necessarily, oh, this is what exactly what this is representing, Mm -hmm. but more focusing on that concept of like pursuit of almost immaterial things or intangible things, but like the that journey itself, that journey, the is journey. In and of itself dope. Yes. It's about the journey, not the yes. destination. Yes. <laughs> We've been saying, <laughs> um, yeah, totally. Oh God. I, uh, we could go so, so deep into just like that, into just what you just said. Like there's just, <laughs> um, but you know, and that's, yeah, that's very much what she's doing with her work, which is one of the many reasons why it's so worth taking time with and like just spend time with these images. Cause they're so fascinating. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're completely right. I don't think at anywhere um, in her like esoteric pursuits was she trying because like this also in line aligns with her criticism of like scientific process. I don't think anywhere was she trying to give definite answers, right? Like she's just exploring and then creating worlds that represent that exploration, which like that that just like fills me with excitement and like makes me feel magical like just that concept you know let's take a a, one more quick break and then we'll come back and we'll wrap everything up wrap it up wrap it up wrap it up I found a book on the three of them and it was like $1,300. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) I like clicked on it because it was called like Surrealist Friends or something. And I was like, oh, yeah. And it was truly like over $1,000. Yeah, no, I was not expecting you to say that. (laughs) Yeah, I was shocked. (laughs) You were going to say like $13. No. Damn. All right. Well, that's like what happened when we were researching death portraiture. And I found that really interesting book about like death portraiture in America. And it was like, it was like hundreds of dollars. And I was like, there's oh. no reason. <laughs> there's like, no, <laughs> yeah. Never has to be that expensive. <laughs> We're back for the last little chunk of our lovely episode on uh, Remedios Varo. This has been fun. This has been a, a great deep dive. And mm. I, I think we're all having a really nice time. <laughs> I'm having a really nice time. I I loved learning about this woman's life. I loved learning about her just various lovers and all of her marriages and never getting divorced, but just keep <laughs> keeping on marrying guys. And collectibles. You know, yeah. And uh, um, just keep keep marrying guys and make artwork about the nature of the universe. Like that's it's, I mean. Well, and it's so <laughs> funny because I don't know if this is like 
a hot take, but I mean, she's in typical, at least from my observation, typical Sagittarius style. She stays friends with all of her exes like forever. Like they just, she like keeps them around, you know, like they, they Sagittarius woman thing. I don't, I guess. (laughs) Good. I don't, I know a couple Sagittarians who, I mean, I do that and I'm not a Sagittarian, but yeah, I'm sure we're going to get some people that are like, no, but (laughs) she does in a lot of ways, though. Yeah, she does represent a lot of characteristics about the typical Sagittarius. I mean, like explorer energy, like big explorer, big, big, like philosophical into the journey. Like that is how I see Sagittarians. So that makes sense. And Um, the concept of a lot of lovers instead of like one soulmate. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's part. That's part of the journey. That's part of the exploration. (laughs) All right. So to kind of wrap up this discussion, let's talk a little bit about her unfortunate, untimely death. She did die rather young. But also this is this is something I feel like we kind of see in art history a little bit like it's something that is often done with Van Gogh, but I've seen it done with other artists too, where their final work becomes a representation of their like for like foreboding of their death. Yeah. Right. Ooh. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what we have here. Um so her final work, which is so good. Like it's beautiful and like s- it's simpler than a lot of her work, but mm-hmm. like still fantastical you know at the same time and it's still life being resuscitated from 1963 and this image is of a table with you have um a tablecloth like over it that's kind of like whooshing like it's like like it's being spun around mm-hmm. by some kind of force above it there's a candle um there's plates there's apples and they're all kind of whooshing around in a circular motion as though some kind of entity or energy is you know creating like a a tornado type situation here Mm-hmm. And this was her last work. And and one thing that's interesting about this one is almost all of her known works have a figure, have a person in them, um, have some or some kind of human-esque, you know, figure like, um, you know, like an owl person or whatever. And this one does not. This one is is. I don't know. In a way, it's like <laughs> it's like the opposite of a still life because like it's not it's it's focused still. on motion, you know. <laughs> right. But like the subject matter is what you would see in a still life, but it's mm-hmm. about motion. Yeah. So that's already interesting that the, this final work, we kind of have the the main figure being removed. Let's see. I'll read. I'm going to read what Janet has to say. Just always, <laughs> always deferring to Janet. Um, yes. Still Life Being Resuscitated is the last work Varro completed before her sudden death at the age of 50 on October 8th, 1963. Um, She died unexpectedly of a heart attack. It is also her only known painting that included no human figure. Perhaps prophetically, Varro expressed the ultimate union in the cyclical rebirth of nature. Here, a table covered with a cloth, eight plates, fruits, and a candlestick has entered into movement stimulated by an invisible energy. As this tableau comes to life, its contents are swept into a whirlwind so that the fruits become planets orbiting around a sun represented symbolically by the candle flame. In the course of orbiting, some fruits collide, explode, and send their seeds back to Earth. This is perhaps the Big Bang. 
that science hypothesizes was the generator of life. As the seeds reach the floor, they magically germinate, sprout roots, and bear small plants. Dragonflies that have been witness to the event fly out to spread the news. The title, which can be translated literally from the Spanish as dead nature being resuscitated, ironically declares resurrection as the theme. That like I I got like chills Ooh, yeah. like that like makes yeah, no, that's, that that's like, heavy that's yeah. heavy and it also you know gonna kind of dive into personal belief I guess here you know we all have our beliefs about death um, and it's an incredibly personal thing but to me this very much represents at least what I think happens. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer in like death kind of being a return to the big mm-hmm. universal, you know, the big bang, the big, yeah. the big universal explosion of of everything. And mm-hmm. um, the way that's just described and expressed in this image, like it feels to me like a, a a really beautiful representation of that final journey right like the final journey yep post, yeah post mortem and especially um, like the energy yes like so much yeah. energy and the fact that i, I like that um that miss janet uh <laughs> describes the orbits almost as if planets orbiting around the sun Same. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really dynamic and I like that there is just so much momentum in this work and it's also, there's no figures in it. So it's, it's really, really interesting. And I mean, yeah, it's kind of strange too, because I mean, they say her death was unexpected, but she had reported not feeling super great before she died and kind of had like a, like a crap. (laughs) like bad habit of just chain smoking and drinking massive quantities of coffee um her whole life and many artists did (laughs) yeah that's on brand for being totally (laughs) um and so who knows she might have had some sort of like like prescience about like her her time coming to an end totally. i don't know yeah totally exactly i think that that's what kind of gives weight to the spooky tale that she was totally. you know obviously she's very spiritual and i do not think it is i don't know i think a lot not everyone but i think a lot of people can kind of sense those things i do think that's mm-hmm. possible and you kind of know or or have hunches or i i wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it for her especially being as much of a mystic as she was and so yeah i mean there's there's no way to know there's no way to know if this painting was actually her you know representing um her impending death but i love the the connection there and i love looking at this image as representing death because i think it's really easy and common, especially in like our modern era to think about death as like motionless as, as dead as, you know, you know, like in a heavy way, like as blackout, Mm -hmm. like done. And I really love the idea of death as just part of a larger cycle. And as it actually representing a very new kind of motion, right? Like a different. um, And so I, you know, whether or not that was the intention, I love looking at this image as a representation of death. I love it too. It's really powerful. And I, I think that it's a beautiful 
last work. I mean, you know, kind of a bummer. You hear a lot in um, all of the biographies about her, just how short her rise to fame was between her first major exhibition in 1955 and her death in 1963. But she, you know, at least she got to have some recognition in her lifetime (laughs) which is more than a lot of artists so like totally that happened you know love to see it love to see it (laughs) especially for a for a woman artist right absolutely rather unheard of in a lot of cases (laughs) truly (laughs) all right um any any last words on our girl before we we do a listener mail oh man i don't know just uh i have had such a good time looking at her work. I would suggest that anybody who's feeling a little just fatigued at this point in our situation, get on YouTube and and watch some fantastical videos of her art with a groovy music and (laughs) just have a groovy time. It's what I did last night and it was pretty cool. Maybe I'll actually, that actually sounds super fun making a YouTube video like that for our channel. That's just like these images with like some fun music and like Mm -hmm. zooming in and out. And like, I don't know, I might get creative. We'll see. I think Nat, you have to bounce before we, we do listener mail. I'm sure it's going to be great listener. I love you. Um, (laughs) And thank you for writing in. I I appreciate it. Um, Anything else that needs to be said, you all will say. (laughs) There. Thanks for having me. I feel like the guest who's leaving. I know. What are you doing? Uh, become a patron. So I only have one job. Love you. Goodbye. <laughs> we love you, Nat. Till next time, Nat. So we'll finish out with this listener mail. It's kind of long, but it's really good. And it is on our hostile architecture episode, which Ooh. is a very good episode. You guys should listen to it if you haven't. We have a, a listener mail from Andrea. It says, hello, babes, longtime listener, first time commenter. I stumbled across your podcast while you were all little baby podcasters. And I just love to hear how you've all grown. <laughs> oh, thank we, you. We she have. That I grew. <laughs> <laughs> we have. We have grown and changed. No, we are, I'm kidding. We're grown. We are much different people than we were when we began this for sure. Okay, I just listened to your hostile architecture episode. I'm a landscape architect by trade, but I also received a minor in art history during college. I was very excited to have two of my interests cross over like this. I had some comments from the design side of this topic that might interest you ladies. Number one, the leaning bars you discussed are complete bullshit. Um, And then she like links a product and uh, this product in particular has a matching seat rail. But the idea of having something in the landscape for people to just lean on is absurd. I've never specified them for any of my designs because they are so impractical. This leads to my second point. I was hoping the discussion on arm bars, seat separators would also include a mention of accessibility. The ADA standards of accessible design requires a certain number of seats in a public space to be accessible. This means there needs to be arm bars, seat separators for some seats for those individuals who have mobility issues or difficulty getting into or up from a seat. Obviously, this doesn't excuse the use of arm bar seat separators on all seats, but it is a consideration that many clients who are also public entities will mention to the designers they hire. Sometimes permitting agencies will require a certain number of seats to have them in order to obtain a permit during the design phase of the project. Um, And 
this I just like want to comment on because we did talk about accessibility, but we didn't talk about this particular kind of accessibility, which is important to talk about that yeah. having like armrests and separate separated seats can be good for certain people. Um, it's just probably it, it shouldn't be the only option. Um, yes. It's one of those those examples where it provides accessibility. And I think we were talking about it from the standpoint of how it doesn't provide accessibility. So thank you for kind of clarifying that, Andrea, because it uh, wasn't something we really thought about as in that being necessary for some people. Mm -hmm. As a landscape architect who has been doing this for almost 10 years, I've seen a shift from wholly preventing skateboarders from using public spaces through the use of anti-skateboarding devices to kind of embracing them. One of the big projects I worked on at my firm on the East Coast wanted to implement notches in the cast-in-place concrete benches to prevent skateboarders from grinding on the edges. Since then, I've worked on a couple skate parks and even another design that the client, a public parks entity, said they didn't care if skateboarders used the concrete benches to do tricks. I think the mindset against skateboard skateboarders is starting to come around. So that's positive. Yeah. Love I hope so. Love to see it. We recently worked on a CPTED project that aims to add lighting to a trail system in the area. This project in particular came about because of some violent assaults that occurred on this tra trail system. Since trails are usually isolated, not all CPTED principles can be easily applied. Over-policing is obviously an issue in the public sphere, but a space like a trail is difficult to patrol and there aren't always a lot of eyes on it from other users. Just wanted to include that bit of information as well. All of your points were very on trend with how many younger designers, so, and she specifies younger than 40-ish years old or so, feel mm -hmm. about designing for public spaces. Most times, from my experience, the clients are the ones who are asking for the items of hostile architecture, and those requests are actually coming from the communities in which the public space is located. Society's mindset is slowly changing, but a lot of people don't want to see these changes come to fruition. Anyway, I loved hearing the discussion from outside the landscape architecture field and it gave me a lot of things to think about when one of our clients asked for some hostile architecture it will definitely help spur some discussion to see if we can come to a different resolution in the design as always keep up the good work and fuck gogan <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> i really enjoyed that message i Ah, yeah, it makes me excited that this is a discussion and I am hoping that in our lifetimes we will see a radical shift from, I don't know, policing homelessness and what people who want to skateboard. I mean, what? I don't I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't on that episode, but I would have had some words. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> and we all did. We all did yeah. for sure. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack from it, but it's it's great hearing it from someone in the architecture realm. Very good points. Definitely. Yeah. And we like I love getting emails like this. Obviously the long one, it's long, you know, it's a, it's a lot to read and it had been a lot to write. Um <laughs> but yeah. uh, we really appreciate it cuz it's um you know, we talk about this a lot on, on the show. We we come at a lot of our topics from an outside perspective. You know, we, we try and provide thoughtful but 
but baseline understandings of different topics. So it's so great to get people that are willing to write in with like extended information, um, viewpoints, and like just give us more about what it's like to actually be in that field and like working with it. Like we really appreciate that. And I think, you know, our listeners also really appreciate getting to hear those other perspectives Um, because none of us would have any idea what it's like, you know, trying to work with someone who wants hostile architecture or anything along those lines. So thank you very much for writing in with all that information. It's, it's a huge topic and a conversation I think we should all keep having because it, it seems to be something that has just very much kind of been like brushed aside. We definitely got a lot of responses to this episode, to the hostile architecture episode from people that were like, I had no idea. Like I've never even right. heard of such a thing. Right. <laughs> and like, and I don't blame them. Like if you're not, you know, if you're not looking for it, if yeah. you're not um, particularly involved in any type of like ecosystem that talks about it, why would you notice, you know? Um, yeah. So this being something that affects our communities as a whole, let's keep talking about it. It's important for sure. Keep the conversation going, y'all. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. If you have additional thoughts, uh, write them in. And where to contact us. Contact us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Some other things to plug. We plugged the book plenty of times. Buy our book. (laughs) (laughs) Buy the book. Honest Art Dictionary by the Art History Babes. It's pretty cool. Buy it. Um, Other things. If you enjoy our content and you want to help support us, we would really appreciate that. As Nat said, you know, she had a pop off because she's got to go work one of her other jobs. And it'd be cool if we could get to a point where um, this could be our primary uh, situation and and ever so slightly we're getting there like we're we're moving the needle so if you enjoy our content if you listen to us a lot and you get a lot out of our content there's a few different ways you can support we've got merchandise which is always fun the best ways to support are with a continued like monthly donation and you can do that on Patreon our Patreon's pretty popping. We have tons of bonus episodes over there. Wow. We've got videos. We've got the book club. And that's another thing. I get a lot of people like on Instagram and stuff being like, Art History Babe should do a book club. We have one. We <laughs> got a book club. Go we got a book on club. the Patreon. Go to the Patreon. You will have a book club. Slash Art History Babes. Be part of our book club. For every book we read, we we'll, we do like a Zoom at the end and we can talk about it. It's fun. You can ask us questions about anything. Like, um, So that's a, a fun way to engage with us um, and also help support us. Patreon's just full of goodies. Head over there if you want to support. Also, another additional option, if you are interested in the intersection of art and sex as we are, you can support us on the AHB Center for Erotic Art that we have recently developed, which is onlyfans.com slash art babes. And that's another adult space. You must be of, of adult age um, where we get to kind of uh, roam free and, and talk very <laughs> openly about topics involving art and sex. And that is already getting to be a pretty fun hop in place. So check that out as well. Check it out. com slash art babes. All of those things linked below for you. Uh, did I miss anything? 
No, I think he did an incredible job of <laughs> plugging it all. Thank you. So, so listeners- much of my life is like advertising shit. I feel like <laughs> uh, you know what? It's <laughs> just the hear. it's the curse of the podcaster. You know the it's- audacity that we would want to get paid. I don't <laughs> even know what I we're know, thinking. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. So we really, yeah, and we obviously super appreciate all of you who have been supporting for a while now. We love thank all of our you, patrons. You. Y'all are amazing. And yeah, we'll we'll just keep truck trucking along with all of our our many adventures. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Remedios Varo. And, uh, you know, write in with your thoughts, arthistorybabes at gmail.com. We'd love to hear them. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Happy full moon in Scorpio, everybody. Have a, have a good cry. Charge, charge your, your cool rocks and, uh, yeah. Practice some alchemy. Yeah. Why not? history babes. she's just got like a million lovers and it's fucking cool